Hello, Bill. Good morning, Matt. Welcome to the DMZ, everybody. First one of uh, January, right? We we didn't go last. We we didn't we didn't go last week, right? Uh, it's all a blur. I I don't know. Um, I feel like we have not done this in a while, and uh, of course, timely, man. Here we're we're just days away from the the Iowa caucuses. This is Friday, a little late in the week for us, but we are oh, four days away. It's Monday. Uh, we have to constantly remind the Matt Lewis prediction. Yes, yes. Which is Trump would lose one of two yep. of the first two contests, which the more likely one being New Hampshire, not Iowa, correct? Yeah. In fact, I think uh, I will say I think Trump wins Iowa. I think Nikki wins New Hampshire. That's where I'm at today. You're, you're, you're sticking. You, I'm you probably sticking. Don't- you probably feel better about it now, now that Chris Christie has dropped out, of course. Yeah, I certainly I do. Absolutely. And it, that was a necessary condition. This is almost like in Die Hard when the FBI shows up and they cut the power. It's a necessary precondition for my master plan to go through, Bill. Um, can I say something that I think I, I don't believe anyone has mentioned yet? I probably should have written this in a in a column, but I, I'm out of time for that, I think. Um, do you remember how much, what Trump got in New Hampshire in 2016? Mm-mm. No. With 35%. Yeah. So not a, not an overwhelming victory, right? But remember Rubio had been, Rubio was, I believe Rubio was on a glide path to New Hampshire. Here's my, here's, here's my second question for you, Matt Lewis. Who came in second in New Hampshire in 2016? John Kasich. John Kasich. 16%. And then Cruz was a little over 11, Bush at 11, and Rubio 10.5. And Chris Christie at 7. And then Fiorina was 4. So if you want to count Fiorina as more like old establishment Republican... You add up all those Republicans, you know, separate out Cruz. So Kasich, Rubio, Bush, Christie, Fiorina, that's 48%. Yes. And Trump, Cruz is 47%. Like that's- yeah, and, 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 and things like that, Bill, were, were what led a lot of us to say, if we could just get him one-on-one. Well, right. I mean, I, right? to this day, I would say if the Republican establishment organized around a single alternative in January, by 20, January 2016, I don't think you have a Trump presidency. Like he, he was a beatable person. He was not winning majorities throughout the entirety of that race. And he had already lost Iowa. So if he loses Iowa and New Hampshire, yes. it's hard to imagine. That's right. But at the same time, Trump was there was something happening in the Republican Party. There was something churning that Trump was tapping into. So you look at the exit poll data from 2016, you know, Cruz wins Iowa because of evangelicals. But Trump's not at zero with evangelicals. He is still holding his own. Uh, And in most of the primaries, 
he is winning pluralities of evangelicals, not overwhelming majorities, but pluralities. Cruz had his his one of his late victories in Wisconsin because of evangelicals in Wisconsin, because there still were a, a good, healthy pocket of evangelicals who were very skeptical of Trump. He hadn't fully won them over yet, but he was made. Yes, and, and, by the, and by the way, and by the way, real, you know, real quick, I would say. Um, Places in America that had high social capital, you know, where they where they don't bowl alone, right, were more resistant to Trump. Yeah. If you had a strong social fabric, close knit communities, at the time, were more resistant to Trumpism. Mm-hmm. The places that went Trumpy first were um, places where there's, uh, you know, atomism. Mm-hmm. At least that was true in twenty early twenty sixteen. So, so I look at that and I say, Trump Trump has been polling in New Hampshire, low to mid forties, pretty much the whole time. I think there's there's a there's a few where he's a little under forty, but generally speaking, low forty. I think his average is forty two forty three, and even Haley's rise in New Hampshire is not coming at the expense of Trump's average. He's held his own. So it looks like the mix of moderate establishment Republican to new populist, right-wing populist Republican, it looks like that mix is the same in New Hampshire as it was eight years ago. Yeah. We'll know for sure when the votes come in. Right. But the uh, obvious caveat is that New Hampshire is different from a lot of states because yes, independent. Right. And and by the way, Trump, I don't know if you've noticed this, Trump is already laying the groundwork to delegitimize Nikki Haley's victory in New Hampshire by making this point. He's also going after Nikki it's Haley. It's a legitimate one. point. It's not, it's not manufactured. Well, OK, he's also going after her on birtherism stuff and on alleged affairs. So he's he's clearly worried about her. A B, um, he's going after her. In New Hampshire. Now, look, does he have a point that New Hampshire is different? Yes, he does. But one could certainly argue that, that New Hampshire has a better idea that you would want that a political party would want to incentivize selecting a nominee who has the potential to attract independents and swing voters. Well, so sure. it's not illegitimate. That's, that's a perfectly fine electability argument, but it's not one that has any obvious currency beyond New Hampshire and the Republican primary. Well, I mean, I I don't even know how to respond to that. I mean, I think that like one could clearly argue that New Hampshire is a better idea than other states that are closed. Um, and I also think, and this this is I, I think this is really the unspoken thing so far today. If Nikki Haley wins New Hampshire, there's a potential that that would give a momentum boost that could then be transferable to other states, including possibly that, South Carolina. That's, right. That to me is the weak part of the argument, the transferability. Uh, I mean, w- what is momentum? I mean, I, I, I know we're probably going off on like way different tangents than we were expecting to go on, but I've been sort of rumoring. I believe in, I believe in momentum. It is, well, so, well, so, so let me give you an example. Okay. Because I, I think that, uh, I'll just, I'll go real quick. If you watch a football game, one team will be winning the whole game and then there's a fumble, and there's a momentum shift. It is a invisible, mystical, spiritual power that is still pretty observable. You will see the momentum shift, and it is a different ball game. 
And it is almost magical. It's hard to define. But I think it is a real force that actually, whether it's because of perception or whether it's magical, it actually is a thing. Um, and so it's possible that a victory in New Hampshire would change change the world, just sh- shake things up. I think, I think momentum in a sporting event is different than momentum in a pres- presidential primary. Momentum in a sporting event, when it happens, is some great play occurs that not just excites the team that it favored, but also rattles the other team. And so their play gets tighter, sloppier, and things fall apart. And of course, even in a, in a, professionals don't get so rattled. And so you can give them momentum shifts again with some other player making a great play on the other team. Um, in a presidential contest, we see momentum when there is a primary without an incumbent and most people are not following the day-to-day early on in the process. And so people like you and me are obsessing over all these little swips of poll data and crowd reactions and debates and whatnot, but the average voter isn't. And then someone wins or does better than expected in an early contest. And so people like you and me make a big deal about it, which filters into broader media coverage, which affects the people who had not yet been paying attention until up until that point saying, oh, there's some other person here that I wasn't aware of. And I didn't really have a lot of deep allegiance to anybody in the first place because I'm a normal human being. And so now I'm learning about this person who's getting this burst of media coverage and then momentum can occur. This race is unlikely to be that race because you have a de facto incumbent in Donald Trump. He is a known commodity to nearly every Republican voter. They have an opinion about him. And so if a state like New Hampshire, who is, which is an anomalous state with an electorate that is not like most other Republican primary states, and they do something that is out of what's unexpected, that will get the media coverage. But the South Carolina voter, I mean, took South Carolina, I know Trump and I know Nikki Haley. And right now we're two to one for Donald Trump. And like hurting New Hampshire means jack to me because she was my freaking governor for eight years. And I know who she is. And she's not hitting my lizard brain the way Donald Trump does. So and on top of all that, South Carolina is one month after New Hampshire. It's not the next week. There's Nevada between the two, and Haley isn't even competing in the Nevada caucus where the delegates get decided. She took a pass that thing. It was stacked for Trump and went to the Nevada primary, which the Republican Party isn't even acknowledging as a delegate contest. So, like, there's no, there's no, there's not, even if there could be momentum, it would dissipate in the four week period between the two contests. So I think people who are hanging their hats on this bank shot strategy for Nikki Haley are deluding themselves because the party fundamentally is not in a uh, detached, fluid, shopping around phase. They have a guy that they generally know and like in Donald Trump. Well, um, you know, we could split hairs and go back and (laughs) forth on this, but... 
We could, but I generally agree with you in the sense that you and I disagree about New Hampshire. I think she's going to win New Hampshire. I mean, right? You I, don't. I, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to stick with Trump. I don't. It, it's not crazy to make your prediction based on current poll data. Um, and I, but and I think that there is a chance that the victory in New Hampshire gives her the momentum. You might argue a month is good for her. That she needs time to work to basically run for governor of New Hampshire. I'm sorry, of, of South Carolina again, but. Whatever the case may be, I think you and I agree that that is a long shot, that just because she wins New Hampshire, again, that just gets her in the door for the next part of remember, all the stars have to align for her to be the nominee. What, what, this what, is the what, second star. This is the second star that would have to align. And I think winning South Carolina is a lot harder for her than winning New Hampshire. A lot less like she's freaking from South Carolina. Like the fact that you have to say that is already should be like flashing code red. It is a problem, but look, could Ron DeSantis beat Trump in Florida? No. In South Carolina than than Haley would, but probably wouldn't even get there to find out. In South Carolina culturally, you know, like there's a military part of South Carolina, there's a genteel part of South Carolina, there's the Kiowa Island vote, which will probably go all to Nikki Haley. But by and large, South Carolina is a southern rural state that fits Trump pretty darn well. So let me circle this back to something that you wrote about previously, uh, which was the DeSantis-Haley debate. And you were not impressed with either mm-hmm. one in that debate, right? No. And I wrote, so I wrote about this at the Daily Beast, and I did a podcast about this uh, with Guy Denton at my podcast, Matt Lewis and the News. Um, but no, I thought it was horrible, man. And, and, and it was one of those things where like uh, we had hoped that the winnowing of the field, that having just two candidates would make for a better debate. Um, and it just was a S show. It was basically two people bickering for two hours, um, accusing each other of lying. Go, Nikki Haley repeatedly telling people go to rondesantislies.com or DeSantisLies, whatever it was. Um, and there was really no, uh, my take is, I, you know, I think Nikki Haley's biggest, you know, unique selling proposition, certainly as it contrasts and compares to Ron DeSantis, is that Nikki Haley has the ability to be charming and likable. You didn't see any of that in this debate. It was just her fighting him the whole time. And by the way, give them both kudos for being able to recite all these dozens of talking points, you know, a million miles an hour. I mean, that's a skill that I could not replicate, I assure you. But there was really no likability, no, nothing authentic. It was very recited and rehearsed. It was just not, not fun to watch. This is, this is why I don't think a month's time between New Hampshire and South Carolina benefits Nikki Haley. She's not good. She is not, she, she has certain, she, she's not all she bad. She can be. She has certain. She can be great. She, she has flashes of brilliance, I would yeah, say, where but, she can but, be great. But she is, she's not great under pressure. Like her best moments in the debates for, so far were punching down against Vivek Ramaswamy. Because he is a moron and she could expose that. 
beyond that, she hasn't had a whole lot of great moments. I mean, again, she totally blocked well, In my mind, and, and she's a good debater in the sense that she's capable of fighting. Um, but not honestly, she didn't fight well with DeSantis. Well, look, if your goal is go in there, leave no shot unanswered, throw elbows, hold your own against a bully, she did that. But there was nothing inspiring about that. And by the way, I think the biggest problem I saw with Haley and DeSantis is that they both, this goes to the recitation of talking points, they both seem like politicians. Yeah. In a party that hates politicians. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason, a big part of the reason that Donald Trump is so popular in the Republican Party is he doesn't seem like a normal politician. And here you have Nikki Haley and DeSantis. Essentially, it could have been Rubio and Ted Cruz. It's, it's the same old song. Every politician, and Trump is a politician, every politician uh, has, has to be... Uh, inconsistent, contradictory, appeal to people in disparate camps with, you know, uh, with a certain amount of cognitive dissonance. Like no, no one can can survive presidential politics and be completely pure, you know, 24 hours a day. It is impossible. Uh, but the better politicians find a way to navigate those, those tricky areas without it being so obvious and clunky and cringy. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, you know, Bill Clinton, uh, actually, there's some cringy moments of Bill Clinton, but like on the whole, Bill Clinton, you know, Barack Obama, uh, George W. Bush, uh, uh, they managed to do that without eroding a core of authenticity that people responded to uh, in the case of Trump. So here you have this situation just a couple of days, the same day as the debate, we had the town hall and he's asked by a hardcore anti-abortion voter uh, about some of the things that Trump has suggested, what, that he won't go all the way and oppose abortions in all circumstances. And Trump says, uh, well, I've, uh, I got a role returned and I'm proud of it, but uh, you got to have some of these ex exceptions uh, or else you can't win elections. I mean, you, I mean, sometimes women don't even know they're pregnant by the time it, it's six weeks. So you can't really have a ban at six weeks. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm saying a little more, a little more loosely than he did, but it was pretty clear. It was, it was transparently Machiavellian. It had nothing to do with the principle of the issue. It was all about how to win elections. Uh, and for all I know, it did not sit well with the voter who was asking the question. But do I think this means he's going to lose 10 points in Iowa with evangelical voters? I certainly do not, because he has done so many other things that yeah. uh, are so uh, uh, outrageous, audacious, offensive, uh, against social norms, against media norms, that appeal to Republican based voters that they let that one go. Just like if Bernie Sanders occasionally yeah. says something that kind of pragmatic, hardcore socialist, most of them will say, well, you know, Bernie's got to say that one. But I know he's the real deal because yeah. of the. I, I, I agree with that. I think, I think the bigger problem for Trump is going to be when Democrats clip the first half of that soundbite sure. where, sure. he, where he takes credit for Roe 
and put millions and millions of dollars behind ads showing, you know, with him saying that. Now, the interestingly, Bill, and I don't want to get too off topic here, but although abortion is incredibly powerful right now as a topic for Democrats, and you see Democrats consistently are winning these referenda, referenda, referendums, I don't know, like referendums. they've consistently won votes about abortion. But it I don't think there's been a single pro-life politician who's been taken down by the abortion issue since Roe was overturned. And As so one could argue someone already in office. I mean, I think there are people who have lost elections as not in Yeah, but I don't think we could pin the abortion issue specifically. Like, let's say like Brian Kemp, for example, didn't hurt him. You know, um, a, a lot of Republican uh, governors and elected officials were reelected at the same time their state is saying, you know, hey, let's keep abortion rights or let's keep, a, you know, let's not be uh, you know, too stringent here. Um, so it, it's not clear to me whether the abortion issue will stick to Trump, um, even if, even if it's wildly popular, and even if states go out of their way to put it on the ballot, it's not clear that it's going to impact the actual presidential election, the candidates. But these videos of Trump saying these things. Maybe that maybe that does make a difference. Well, I mean, it's it's this is the one area where Donald Trump is making it a little hard for Democrats because he's saying these two opposite things. And so I'm sure Democrats are going to do what you were saying, which is they're going to take the snippets. I mean, that's not, it's not just that one snippet. I mean, Trump ran for office in 2016, promising to overturn Roe v. Wade, does it takes credit for it. Uh, so you can you can very easily say this is who he is and he's going to make things worse going forward. But so and I think that will have some success in galvanizing democratic base, maybe pulling in a on the fence, eh, I'm kind of mad about Biden about this, maybe I'll stay home. Maybe you can get that voter to not stay home with a message like that. Uh, but for the for the swing voter, can Donald Trump saying, "Oh, don't worry, I've, look, we're not going to do a f- national ban." You know, I just brought it back to the states. Look, Mississippi is going to do this. You, you in Michigan, you don't want to do it. That's fine. I don't care. Um, uh, he can potentially do that and not depress in the Republican base because they're so hardcore for him, uh, and maybe. Uh, get that swing were to say, you know what? Uh, okay, I, I I wasn't so sure about Donald Trump on this one issue, but he's not gonna, he's not pushing my button here. So, and I'm really mad about Biden about this or that. So I'll go with Trump. Like like swing voters exist. I mean, this is sort of hard for people to to believe, but we've had in the in 2023, of course, 2023, in the real clear politics polling average, five lead changes. That's that's unusual for the year prior in a, in a presidential year. They don't usually change that much. Usually they're pretty stable. Um, and I'm not saying there are a lot of swing voters. I'm, you Maybe you don't, you don't know any yourself because they're few and far in between, but they exist. Uh, there's a reason why yeah. swing states went one way in 2016 and one way in 2020. It's not just because of base turnout. Uh, so uh, I, I don't totally discount the possibility of Trump being able to do this <clears throat> 
seemingly ridiculous move uh, because he can yeah. do it with such bluster without sacrificing his own base. Where to get back to Nikki Haley, she's got zero yeah. skill on this front. She cannot navigate a tricky situation. That's okay, so let me be phony. So let me say what I think Nikki should do. Um, if she wins New Hampshire, I think if she wins New Hampshire, unless unless DeSantis wins Iowa, which I don't think is going to happen, but if Nikki wins New Hampshire, I think she should stop debating. I think she goes to South Carolina and it should be speeches, town halls, things like that. Because I don't think that she is showing her sort of charismatic charming self in the debate format where she's going in and fighting. But I think she does show that side on the stage when she's giving a speech or at a town hall. Now, she obviously had that huge slavery gaffe, mm -hmm. so she can be rattled. And I'm sure there will be plants, whether Democratic plants or Republican plants, there to try to get her off message. But I think she's a, a lot more compelling um, when she's speaking directly as opposed to having to feel like she has to fight Ron DeSantis. I was struck with you. Know, so Jonathan Martin at Politico had a negative column on Haley the other day, um, basically saying that um, you know she's she's not appealing to uh, her appeal is too niche. It's too college educated to really to win in a, in a Republican primary. And he's and he's because he went to one of her events in Iowa in a I think it was a Des Moines suburb, uh, and every person he spoke to at that event was college educated. Um, and, and, and they and they themselves would acknowledge, yeah, she's not going to do well in these rural parts. No way, that that that's Trump country. Um, uh, but I he was struck, the poorly educated Bill. Right. I was struck that the event was fifteen minutes, no Q and A, four days, less than a week before Caucus Day. Uh, I think they got scared after the slavery gaffe. And I don't think they're going to put her in a lot of unscripted situations at this point going forward because she's not good on her feet. Well, again, it's interesting because I think she has these flashes of brilliance. She's obviously, I mean, I couldn't get on stage for two hours and like, you said this, you wrote that, you said this, you voted to raise the debt ceiling in such and such year. I mean, like just to be able to spout I'm not saying it, it's, it's, it's uncanny. Um, and and then I think she has a very charming, compelling side. But, yeah, then she does stupid things that are, you know, sort of repellent. So, um, you know, can she string together a month or so of uh, uh, without making a gaffe? But, but, you you know, but she has my defense. She needs to win over existing Trump voters, you know, so New Hampshire, maybe that's like a 50, 50 state between like hardcore, you know, conservative populist and moderate suburbanites, but other States aren't like that. She needs to, she can't just, you know, play prevent defense and coast and try to avoid gaffes and expect to get anywhere. She needs to be aggressive. She's a, she will eventually have to take on Trump and get, and you can't yeah. take on Trump without, repercussions you know so you said before yeah, you know, that's why it's hard are we, okay are we in agreement that she has to win new hampshire and she has to win south carolina really to have a shot right yeah is there a scenario where she's the nominee without those two states i mean these are the lead-up states of super tuesday and super tuesday is really the ball game i don't see how you 
have a close second in New Hampshire. I mean, you, well, that's it. she's a close second in New Hampshire. She'll still spin it as, you know, it's a two-person race now. Let's move on to South Carolina, my home state. Uh, I don't think her money would dry up in that circumstance. She'd have the money to run ads in South Carolina, so she would continue on to South Carolina. Um, and then she'd have to pray for, I mean, I, I think losing both, like losing your home state going into Super Tuesday is not a momentum builder. So I think she, I think South so Carolina. So maybe it's South Carolina that's actually the I think must win. I think, I think that's the must must. But yeah. again, I'm deeply, deeply skeptical this is, this is going to happen. Uh, oh, I am if, too. I, I, and even if she went South Carolina, you can say, well, it's her home state. Like that, that, is, that doesn't automatically mean she would have a great Super Tuesday. But those are like, those are, I think winning South Carolina is a necessary, whereas getting close to New Hampshire is probably more of a necessary than actually winning. Although her expectations are now rising. So if she does fall short, Trump's going to say, you know, you lost. Uh, and, and so you said earlier, Trump's attacking Nikki Haley that shows that he's worried. Uh, and, and I've heard other people say this too. And I, I think it's a little overblown. Like Trump's got money to burn. Like he should carpet bomb Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. He should try to bootstrap her out of existence uh, if he can and not have it come down to South Carolina or, or anywhere else. It doesn't, it doesn't mean like he's saying, oh my God, she's got my number. She's drawn blood. All is lost if I don't defeat her here. I don't think that's the case because I think Trump could lose both those states and still win Super Tuesday. But it's totally logical on his part to train his fire on the 5% possibility and try to make it into a 0% possibility. Uh, and I have no confidence that Haley can withstand that kind of fire over the course of the next six months. Cause you're, you're telling me she, because she can throw a few roundhouse at Vivek means she's going to handle what Trump throws at her. She's going to hold her own. She can't script that. She can't do set, set speeches. Yeah. No, this, this takes, this takes like some magic, dude. I mean, there has to be a shoe that drops something, something happened. Maybe it's a court case. I, there has to be a stars have to align. And so I think we're pretty much on the same page. Um, I'm a, probably a little more bullish about Nikki's chances, but it's, it's not going to be easy. But um, we just hit the 30 minute mark. So maybe we close with this. I wanted to get your take on this bill because okay. uh, I don't know much about it. You can brief me. But what I'm hearing is that Speaker Mike Johnson had a deal to keep the government open. And if this sounds like deja vu, I feel like we've heard this story before <laughs> that Mike Johnson had a deal and then he started getting attacked by like Freedom Caucus people. And now he may be walking away from that deal, which means that we could have a government shutdown in like a week or something. What is going on? Well, since we started recording, Johnson has. Okay. So this this is so we're, oh. we're at 1130 a.m. on Friday. Uh, so I'm just looking at this uh, right now. Um, he says that you want me to hit pause and we can come. You want me to hit no, pause no, no. and we'll come back in five. Okay. We'll power through. I, I, I know the audience loves it. They just love it when I'm reading from from like my phone or websites in real time. That is they the like it. that people crave. It's not as 
What they really like are either when your dog is barking or when you leave and I just go on a soliloquy as if you never, as if you were still sitting here. I mean, there's so many things we do that are beloved. I mean, I, you can't, you couldn't even rank them. <laughs> um, but he said about 20 minutes ago, quote, our top line agreement remained. So there was an agreement with Senate Democrats to say, these are the top line numbers. These are the overall budget levels that we're going to adhere to uh, in the spending bills. Uh, so whatever we do line by line, it's going to add up to this top line. And the hard right Freedom Caucus types were livid because they, 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 the top lines are too high. And like we put, we got rid of McCarthy and got you, Mike Johnson. Was, we thought you were going to cut a better deal. And now you're not following through with us. And there was a little bit of uncertainty because he would meet with these different factions. If the Freedom Caucus guys would come out of these meetings and say, ah, oh, we he's not going to do this. You know, we've talked to him. He's not going to do it. Uh, and then he comes in and says, well, you're not really, you didn't, you didn't really listen to me. You're, 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 I, I don't think he said that literally. Um, but I'm just reading a, a reporter uh, from The Hill, Emily Brooks, uh, who said, Freedom Caucus Chair Bob Good, who was talking to Johnson on the House floor right before Johnson said our top agreement remains, he said, quote, well, he's not rescinded it yet, but I'm quite certain he's legitimately considering alternatives. Like they, they're, they're telling themselves things that I can only assume he didn't really say uh, or maybe. Yes, just but it does suggest to me, let's let's assume that they're delusional and that they're that they're uh, uh, hearing what they want to hear at some point. He's going to put a pill on the floor. Yes. And then they're going to be stunned. And then all hell breaks loose. But Do they ask, does, does Mike Johnson get the uh, Kevin McCarthy treatment? Well, they're all, I mean, most of those guys have publicly said that they're not pursuing motion to vacate right now. They're, they're, they're grumpy. They're, they're, they're saying Johnson betrayed us or he's not doing what we expected of him. But I'm not aware of any of those people who have said, and if he does this, we're going to Austin, like we did McCarthy. They've stopped short of that. Uh, and they've largely Look, said, well, at least, he's, at least he's not lying to us the way McCarthy did. Maybe they're going to say he's lying to him now. But I haven't heard them level that, that accusation towards him. We're, so we're like one. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene could get a lot of press. Lauren Boebert could get a lot of attention. Well, she probably doesn't want the attention. Right now. <laughs> Matt Gates could get, you know, like there is an incentive. All it takes is one, right, to try. I mean, and I don't even know. What is the Republican majority right now? How many seats? What's what's his cushion? How many seats yeah, could he have? Would Democrats all vote? Would Democrats would have to save him? Right, which we know Democrats have taken the view that you don't you don't get our votes for motions to vacate. Uh, so it, in theory, it only take three uh, to get rid of him. But since what happened after McCarthy was so chaotic, uh, I think even those people know there's no guarantee they would get someone better from their perspective than yeah. Johnson anyway. Uh, this is more bracing reality. If you're not committed to indefinite shutdown, which Johnson explicitly is not, he has said he does not want a shutdown. To not have a shutdown means passing something that will also pass the Senate and be signed by the president. Yeah. Johnson <laughs> is accepting that political math. Let me ask this question. Mike Johnson was one of the kinds of people who wanted 
a shutdown before, right? Like when he was a rank and file member. Well, he was kind of. I mean, so I he, I, look, I don't know. I didn't even know who he was, so I'm not an expert on him. But like, but here, here's the point that I'm trying to make. He is it the case that you take any crazy person and make them the speaker? And now they're like Thomas Beckett and they assume the awesome responsibility uh, that's been, you know, given them and, and they become responsible. Um, well, Donald, Trump, Donald Trump goes against that theory. But but some people are like people are different. Some people, when they get into a position of power, uh, see the world differently and adjust their views and and act in a more responsible fashion. And some people are Donald Trump and do not let the office change their behavior in any way. Um, now, Johnson, and I would still argue, I think Johnson is a downgrade from McCarthy, uh, not as a human being, uh, but because he was put there specifically with these farthest right voices that he has to kowtow to them even more than McCarthy did. Uh, and so I think you're at minimum, we're having even more drama around these basic things, which leads to more anxiety and more concern that we're going to sort of fall off the, the beam here at some point. But uh, when McCarthy did his debt limit deal, and I wrote about this after Johnson got the gavel, Johnson did vote for that deal. That's the one vote he took that was not the nihilistic burn it all down vote because of the other words you could point to where he didn't do that. So that said to me, well, maybe this guy is not going to burn it all down, uh, that he's going to realize that he has to do basic things like keep the government open. And he now he said that explicitly. What we don't know with Mike John. So, so I assume from this point forward, he's going to put these bills to keep the government open on the floor. Uh, and sure, some Republicans will vote no, but those bills will pass probably with the majority of the, the Republican caucus and a healthy dose of Democratic votes, if not near, near unanimity on the Democratic side. Uh, yeah. Now, and then what happens, right? Because this is exactly what got Kevin McCarthy ousted. But, I, but it seems like the, the farthest right folks are not prepared to go around a second time. Yeah. There's a little bit of an uncertainty because Johnson had indicated he doesn't want to do another short-term continuing resolution to keep the government open. But uh, so maybe you have like a small hiccup of a day or two. But I would think that if Johnson's saying what he's saying, and maybe he's even referred to this and I haven't come across the quote on, uh, on X yet. Um, if you have a basic agreement for what you're going to do next, I don't think he's violating his own principle by saying, fine, well, we're going to do a two-day stopgap just to get to these sure. bigger bills because we we are we have, we have a plan of action here. We're not we're not doing a stopgap uh, in perpetuity. We're just doing something right. very temporary. Um, so it looks like oh, so here's another reporter. Speaker Johnson tells reporters he's moving forward with a top line spending deal despite Freedom Caucus opposition. He said nothing about a CR. So he's still being a little you know weird about that. Um, but I think we're talking about either very brief shutdown that's sort of meaningless uh, or no shutdown at all with a very minor CR. I think that's where we're headed here. What do you think if Jim Jordan had become speaker, we think he plays the same, he does what same thing that Johnson's doing or 
I mean, I, I th- I'm sure there is somebody, if Thomas Massey were speaker, let's say, mm-hmm. we would be in a default. Like that, you know, the, I have no doubt that there's somebody willing to, to drive off the cliff in a game of chicken. But what do you think about, say, Jim Jordan? I mean, Jordan was trying during that process of the speaker vote to go to the more moderate types and try to give some kind of body language. Hey, I'm not going to burn it all down. I mean, I'm not trying to have a shutdown here. But was he on the level there? Or was that BS to try to get those votes? I, I can never know for sure. But he is a he's been a much bigger uh, ideologue on these budget type votes than Johnson, who seems to be much more focused on the social issues in his career than the budget issues. Uh, I don't think I don't think he's been like <clears throat> dreaming of the moment when he would force a shutdown or force a debt default to prove the point that you could go over the cliff and win these giant cuts because of it. And therefore he's not testing the, the, those theories. Now we don't know what Johnson's gonna do yet on the border Ukraine deal. And this is where uh, I I worry that he is worse than McCarthy. But again, uh, Johnson has suggested that allowing Putin to run roughshod over Ukraine is not acceptable to him. Uh, so while he has said HR2 is our position, HR2 is the, an extreme House anti-immigrant bill that will never get through the Senate, would never be supported by Biden. Uh, and so if he was truly inflexible about that, you would not have a deal and Ukraine would be cut loose. Um, I don't think Johnson's really gone as far as to say it's HR2 or nothing. Uh, he said HR2 is our position, which is different. Uh, so if you can get a Senate deal that's supported by Schumer, by McConnell, by Kirsten Cinema, by Republican James Langford, who's a very conservative Republican from Oklahoma, who's been at the center of, of these talks, if they can pull off a deal and a guy like Jim Langford is saying, look, I'm not some squish. I'm not Susan Collins. Uh, I'm, a, I'm as conservative as they come. But we have a genuine crisis on the border. It needs actual action. We can't just make it into a political uh, cudgel. And this is the best we're going to get to clamp down on the current flow of, of migrants. Here you go, Mike Johnson. If you don't take this, not only do you not solve anything on the border, you don't get HR2, you get nothing, and Putin storms into Ukraine, and you go down in history as the guy who made it happen. What do you think about that, Mike Johnson? Uh, now, at the same time, if that deal occurs, Donald Trump's going to lose his mind. I mean, we talk about how Democrats are not going to like the deal, and I'm sure some won't. But Donald Trump's going to have the bigger microphone here, and he is going to go scorched earth on this deal. And he's going to put pressure on Johnson, too. Uh, Now, my optimistic gut says I don't think Johnson wants to be the guy who makes Putin the king of Europe. Uh, So I think he will end up accepting that deal. But it's hard to know for sure. And that cross pressure is going to be brutally intense. This is the kind of commentary that keeps me from replacing you with a 25-year-old blonde. We've had, had, we've had, have had meetings, but uh, I think you've just earned your keep for well, another year. We're going to extend your, uh, your contract one more year, Bill. Um, uh, I know you want to, so we, were, we should talk Biden, right? You want to talk Biden before we wrap up, yes? 
Real quick, real quick. I don't think we should spend much on it. We're at the 44-minute mark. Um, but yeah, uh, David Axelrod is in, uh, there's a Politico playbook interview with Ax, uh, and and Ryan Lizard did an interview, a podcast interview with him <clears throat> for Politico. And basically, um, Axelrod is, is sort of sounding the alarm to something that I, a problem that I've seen, which is that that Biden doesn't really have a second term agenda. Um, the only message he really has is orange man bad. Maybe that's enough to get real because the orange man is bad. Let's be clear. But I feel like Biden should be driving a, a more proactive agenda. I know it's early, um, but there doesn't seem to be the urgency that we would like to see uh, if, if you expect or want Biden to to win. I, I, I don't agree with that. Uh, I think we're in January. We haven't had a single primary vote yet, though they're coming. Uh, and I think it's very possible that we're going to be done with this primary season in literally two weeks, week and, week and a half. <laughs> it uh, could happen, yeah. Uh, but it's still very early. Uh, and you just had Joe Biden give back-to-back -back speeches, which were designed as general election campaign kickoff speeches. This is Biden setting the table of what he would like the frame of the general election to be, which is uh, your democracy is Orange on the man line. Dad. Well, I mean, yes, but it's uh, but it's it's supposed to get even to be more visceral than that. That it's not just about one man is a guy I don't like, but one man is a threat to the foundation of democracy in America and the world. Uh, and Biden did this late in the game in 2022 to good effect. Uh, so here's Biden doing it early. Uh, and this is very akin. You know, so uh, you were mentioning to me, Matt, before that you know, David Axelrod did this interview with, with Politico, and he's worried that Biden is not shifting the general election mode fast enough. And, uh, and you remember that he had to have a heart-to-heart uh, -heart Barack Obama in 2011 to get him to shift gears. Uh, but I think the Obama experience should harden Axelrod. I mean, so things things are looking pretty rough for Obama. In the latter part of 2011, they just had the you know the the debt ceiling crisis uh, that Obama had to give concessions on. Uh, so uh, the uh, bagging Obama bagging Osama was in the rearview mirror. Uh, the economy was still very iffy, uh, and so Obama's numbers started to tank, and Romney was looking very competitive, and people were starting to to freak out. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, Romney was near the end of the primary process where he had said enough things about abortion and contraception that were not good general election messages. Uh, and Obama really laid into him with their advertising. It really was in January. If I, I, I have to go and look at the chronology, but I think it was more like May when they really started to, you know, have ads that were strict negative ads and try to define Romney as unacceptable, uh, as, as the, the boss who fires you kind of guy, uh, the main capital stuff, like here are the, here are the communities he devastated, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, 
you know, it was said back then, like, we, this can't be a referendum on Obama. It has to be a choice. Uh, and, you know, Joe Biden understands that because he's said lines like that for years. You know, uh, don't don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. He said that for years. He knows how this works. Uh, but it's hard to have that be top of mind when you're the president, when you're buffeted by crises, when you're in the middle of Israeli-Gaza war, border influx, uh, inflation, even though inflation is coming down, lingering inflation still, lingering concerns still uh, affecting people's perceptions. Uh, so, And Trump is saying literally anti-democratic things, authoritarian things, and it's getting coverage, but it's not getting equivalent coverage because we're not close to voting in the general election yet. Uh, so I think that explains why there's anxiety amongst Democrats. But Biden is now beginning the process of putting both these things on equal on equal platform, and that's gonna it's that's gonna be easier and easier to do the closer and closer you get to election day. So I think Biden is starting early here, not late, in my opinion. All right, you heard it here first. Bill Sherr hey, thinks you, David Axelrod do you, do you think is a bedwetter. Do you think differently? Do you? Think I do. Biden- I do think different. I. I do. I do. Um, So first of all, I don't know if you saw over the holidays, uh, the Daily Mail did this survey or they commissioned a survey and they asked uh, voters what if, you know, if Trump's if Trump's reelected, what would his second term look like? If if, or what one word would describe his second term agenda? And if Biden's reelected, what one word would describe his second term agenda? Now, if you heard about this story at all, it's because Donald Trump, the word, the, the number one word people associated with Donald Trump's second term was vengeance, I think. Revenge, vengeance, vengeance, something like that. The one word people used to describe Biden's second term agenda, nothing. Literally the word nothing was the word people used. So I do think that there's a problem. And uh, I agree it's early. But I think part of uh, what's baked in the cake here with people like me and Axelrod uh, is a unspoken, in in Axelrod's case, worry that Biden does not have the ability, the team, the ability, the the rhetorical skill or the urgency to drive once they get a proactive agenda other than Donald Trump's Hitler. and by the way, that's not a, I'm not saying it's a horrible message, but like once they get a proactive message, can they and will they drive that? I'm not sold. I'm not sure. I don't know. Last time Biden could hide in the basement. He can't do that anymore. No, he can't. I mean, it's not good. I, I think it's a little over, uh, oversold that he, that he hid in the basement. He did events. It just was COVID and he was doing stuff on Zoom and whatnot. I don't think he was uh, unavailable or unknown. They did the debates, of course. It was very helpful to him that we had a global pandemic that allowed him to not have to be out on the hustings. I think it was you more know, that. Remember, do you remember Bob Dole like barnstorming the country in 1996? It was not a pretty sight, Bill. <laughs> I assure you. Um, I think the bigger issue is that we were in a pandemic and Trump was the incumbent. Therefore, <laughs> incumbents don't usually that, win. That didn't hurt. 
That um, didn't hurt. Uh, look, I, I don't think Biden is at his uh, peak when it comes to uh, communicative skills. That's not going to change. He's he, he's not going to be the best on the stump. Uh, and uh, but I do think that when he gives his State of the Union address, I would expect that to be a second term agenda speech far more than a orange man bad speech. That's traditionally what those things are used <laughs> for. Uh, and and I, I think Biden has always, I think it's really in his bones that you need to uh, give people economic hope and be seen as being on the side of, you know, the, the working class. I, I, I don't think that's a concept that is foreign to him. So I, I would expect he would have things to say on what things to say about what, what we have done, what he has done. I think he's got a strong case to make there and then to say how he wants to build on that. So I don't think it's going to be out, out of his element, but he can't do it himself. He does need a team. Uh, and what I would do if I was Biden, if I was the Democratic Party, is I would be building an army of surrogates at the local level. I, I would find people, I, I would do it in every county in America, regardless of swing state, blue state, red state, everywhere. You know, there are people that you know in your community who you respect. There's a business owner you respect, a community banker, small business owner, a teacher, a principal, a PTO leader, um, uh, city council president. Uh, there's all sorts of people that you know and feel like, uh, if this person's saying, I know it's not BS, this person gets what I'm going through. Uh, I think you could find somebody, and even in a conservative county, you can find somebody willing to say, you know what, things are better for me. Uh, you know it. You, you, uh, you're, you, you're more able to go on vacation than you were four years ago. Uh, you're, uh, I, I've been able to hire people this year and I couldn't do it two years ago. Uh, and, and my business owner friends feel the same way. Like there are things that they can say that would resonate, that would, that would match people's experiences that I think any elected official can't do him or herself because it's obviously self-serving. But if people who are sort of outside of politics who are saying it, then I think it would feel more real. And so I would I would build up that team. Uh, so what Biden says on March 7th is matched at the ground level. Awesome. All right. Well, I have to go because I have to write a column about this, Bill, and I will certainly incorporate some of your thoughts uh, into the um on the other hand, <laughs> part of this, because um, I think you probably are more bullish on Biden. Uh, I'm, I'm a little more concerned, but nevertheless, uh, good show. Anything you want to plug? Well, well I do want to plug something, but I do want to say this. I I think that at this point in time, this, this would change you know, maybe six or seven months from now. But right now, I would much rather have good economic numbers than good poll numbers. Because the poll numbers, I think the polls are a lagging indicator. I think the economic indicator, I mean, there I mean, are, are lag economic indicators, but they're also leading economic indicators. All the, all the economic indicators right now are, are pretty good. Uh, so I feel like the polls will catch up to the economic data 
though historically that that's what has happened. And I, so I've never, I've never yeah. seen that. The one wild card. Joe, Tri- Joe Trippi told me that it's going to be six to nine months. Uh, that 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 the the polls will be six to nine months behind the economy. The economy. That's what, I mean, Obama's numbers, Obama's numbers on the economy, like only kicked in September 2012. I mean, his 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 job approval and his head to head with Romney were better than Biden's right now. Um, they weren't awesome. You know, it was all, it was always kind of touch and go, uh, but I I think Biden is I think I think Biden is sort of his his stock price is under is uh, is is below expectations right now. So still share bullish. is concerned. So I got a new piece up at the Washington Monthly. Um, I just want to give you the proper uh, headline that that was used. Um, if you're going to send a, a if you're going to send the president a protest letter, sign your name, because there's this trend of like White House staff and White House interns yeah. and campaign staff demanding Biden uh, call for an immediate permanent ceasefire uh, in Israel, Gaza, and they don't put their names on it, as if that's somehow going to be uh, impressive or intimidating to Joe Biden. Like I don't know if you exist. I don't know who you are. I don't know what your expertise is. Uh, these are people who want to speak their mind, but don't want to risk their jobs. Whereas you go back in the Clinton era, there are people who are like, I am so mad about Clinton's Balkan policy, or I'm so mad about his welfare policy. I'm going to quit. I have a, I'm not, I'm not an intern. I got like a legit job uh, and I'm going to risk my professional career and leave to express my dismay with this proposal. There, there are a couple of them that with, with, with uh, Biden in the past few months. But mostly you're seeing this anonymous protesting, which is, you know, pathetic. Blame those damn millennials and Gen Zs or whatever they are. But yeah, yeah no I'm with you on that. I don't know who they are. I'm still blaming them, Bill. <laughs> but we know who we know who they are. Um, check out that piece. Uh, read my column at the Beast about the debate where I say that I missed Vivek Ramaswamy. Ugh. I'm proud of that lead, Bill. Um, and listen read, to my read, podcast. Read, read, read your old comment about Chris Christie dropping out. That was proven prophetic. Yes, I was ahead of the curve on that. That's from back in November, where I said he has to get out by New Hampshire. Um, I clearly didn't push him out, but I think I was right when I said why he has to get out. Uh, and thankfully he did. He listened. Uh, uh, he helps they trash Haley and DeSantis on the way out to the stage. Christy being Christy, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? He's out. That's, you know, um, and I'm writing about Biden. So check that. Oh, you know, I wanted to plug something uh, apropos of nothing. Uh, but this harkens back to us talking about our Christmas songs and, and all that. Uh, I want to recommend uh, this band called Poolside. When I was down in Palm Beach last week, I was Poolside and this song, Neil Young's Harvest Moon, <laughs> they've got, they call it Daytime Disco and they did a remix of it. The band's called Poolside. The song is Harvest Moon. I'm listening to it constantly, Bill. Maybe it's just me, but check it out. All right. All right. Well, we're well, in that- under an hour, so kudos. So next week, we'll be talking with you after Iowa. 
and right before New Hampshire. That will be an exciting one. So stay tuned for that. Uh, follow us on Twitter at DMZ Show. And uh, we'll see you back here next week in the DMZ. All right. Take care.